Let's pray. Lord, how great you are. We gave you praise, adoration. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for being the God that you are. Lord, so many people worship different, what they call gods, but there's only one God and you are him. Thank you for allowing us to come into your presence. Thank you that you've given us a book which contains what you want us to know about you. And so now, Lord, I pray that as we open up this passage, open up this book, open up the information surrounding 2 Corinthians, I pray, Lord, that you'll give us understanding. Equip us, Lord, and we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a guy named Daniel Schwartz says this in regards to uh, what, how I've titled this message today, Meanwhile, Back of the Ranch. He says, imagine a Western movie where there are problems at the ranch, and so some people get on their horses and ride off to deal with the source of the problem. Now we have two stories that interest us, how people at the ranch are dealing with their problems and how the riders are coping with theirs. So we watch the riders for a while as they try to track down the source of the problem and deal with it. But we don't want the basic plot to get stale or for the viewers to wonder impatiently what's going on So the narrator says, meanwhile, back of the ranch, and we switch to see how they're doing. Now, you might be asking the question, why in the world am I doing this? Why am I starting the message this way? Because we're beginning 2 Corinthians today. Well, let's look at it like this. Last week, we sort of closed the book on 1 Corinthians. Remember 1 Corinthians in a nutshell? Oh, that was great, um, great uh, interaction there. But the church didn't close. Even though we closed the book, the church didn't close. Their lives went on. What happened to them? And after Paul finished writing 1 Corinthians, guess what? His life and the lives of his friends still went on. What happened to them? Now we have two stories that we want to track. And to introduce 2 Corinthians today, we're going to do Just that, kind of track two stories here. We're going to spend much of our time today on Paul's story, but there's a reason why Paul wrote what he wrote in 2 Corinthians. In short, the Corinthian church set themselves up for a couple of major problems because evidently they didn't take to heart Paul's counsel as they wrote in 1 Corinthians. They didn't take care of these issues. And in some ways, things got a little bit worse after Paul wrote his letter, between the 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Well, how did that happen, and what was going on? We're going to see this today. See, Paul was very involved in the lives of the Corinthians all over the Roman Empire. And as a single man, he was fully available, not only to the Corinthians, but to every church, all the churches. In In our day of fast travel, we can go around the world in a matter of hours, You know, think of the amblers who are, as we speak, it took them only a few hours, relatively speaking, to get back to their adopted home country. But compare our day to the time that Paul lived 2,000 years ago. And I find it truly amazing how well Paul kept up with everybody, which just goes to show how much can be accomplished when we are determined. 
I'm reminded of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, that he says, by the grace of God, that he was about the hardest working Christian around. Now, you know, that sounds a little bit arrogant, sounds a little bragging, but that was Paul's testimony. By the grace of God, I worked harder than any of them. Though it wasn't me, it was the grace of God that's with me. Now, Paul was a man on the move. You know, this much we know. And we might even say that the only thing that could tie him down was the church or jail, one or the other. But when Paul was in a certain place for any length of time, what was he doing? He was either evangelizing the lost or discipling the saved or writing letters of encouragement and maybe even some rebuke. See, we got 13 of those letters that have been collected in the New Testament about Paul's writings. In short, Paul was consumed with doing what the Lord Jesus commissioned and directed him to do. And so what I want us to do today is to follow some of Paul's movements as his life intersects with the Corinthians. Now, admittedly, some of this is going to be a little bit of a, of a review because uh, we're going to see how Paul got to the Corinthian, to Corinth in the first place. But I think that we're going to find some powerful things today to apply to our lives. But as an aside, who was Paul? And we think of him as the great apostle, but who was he? Ordinary guy. He really was an ordinary guy. Now, he was good at what he did in his B.C. days. And we know B.C. days, right? Before he became a Christian. He was good at what he did. But God took him and formed him and shaped him into a very sharp instrument. There was a lot that Paul had to unlearn. See, because he was so good at what he did, there were some things that God had to unteach him. And God's instrument of choice to unlearn him was affliction, suffering. And we're going to see much of Paul's understanding of God's purpose for suffering as we actually get into 2 Corinthians. Now, Paul, as an ordinary man, was profoundly changed by the gospel. I said it before, but it bears repeating that Paul never got over the wonder of Christ's salvation. What about you? Are you over the wonder of Christ's salvation? Is it kind of like ho-hum to you? It never was with Paul, ever. See, this was Messiah Jesus who hung on the cross. He is the one mediator between God and man. He, in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in human form, came to Paul, confronted him, and changed him forever. And he said to Paul, he said, Saul, Saul, that was his name. When he confronted Paul, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he did this as he was traveling down the road to Damascus so he can hunt down the Christians like dogs. And with those words, Paul's world crashed in. And everything in his life changed forever with that question. Why do you persecute me? Like when Jesus called James and John and he said, follow me. And likewise, when he said to Matthew, traitor to his nation, Jesus said, follow me. Now Christ commanded Saul, again, who became Paul, to repent and believe the Lord. And he did so. And he did that with reckless abandon the rest of his life. And all who are truly born, again, by the Spirit of God, have responded to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And all of us 
whom the world, some people, you know, who are Christians, the world highly esteems. But God, who is no respecter of persons, are truly ordinary in His eyes. Ordinary, but in the hands of God, become extraordinary. Now, it's been said that God is, will use anyone that's willing to be used. But our usefulness for Him requires that He forms us and He shapes us for His purposes in our world. So let's follow some of Paul's movement, shall we, as we catch something of how the Lord formed and shaped him. So our story begins with Paul's second missionary trip. You know, he remember, remember he, he went on three trips, missionary trips. But in this particular one, it didn't start off so well between him and his missionary partner, his beloved Barnabas. Now, they had a guy named John Mark who was Barnabas's nephew. And this person, by the way, is the, is the one who actually wrote the gospel of Mark. And when they went on their first trip, John Mark went out with them for a time, but he wimped out. He went home. Now, in Paul's eyes, John Mark failed Paul and would not give him a second chance, even though Barnabas insisted that they take him along the next journey. Now, this resulted in Barnabas and Paul splitting up, and it required Paul now to choose a new missionary partner, and his name was Silas. Now, there's a lesson we can learn here. Barnabas, in keeping with his name, the son of encouragement, was able to serve his nephew so much so that at the end of his days, Paul told Timothy to bring Mark with him when he visited him in the prison, for he had become useful in the ministry. And my encouragement to all of us is simply this. Like Barnabas, keep at it. Serve the Lord. Let's recall what the Lord or what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He said, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Remember as well Paul's words to the Galatian churches and to us to not grow weary in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not give up. And as we have opportunity, let's do good to everybody and especially to those who are of the household of faith, to to fellow Christians. See, it's clear that Barnabas did not give up on his nephew. He watched Mark grow spiritually and he was able to help him. But it takes time to do this. So be patient with those that you're discipling. Keep at it. Now, Paul and Silas made it a point to return to some of the churches that Paul had started during his first missionary trip in the place that we call Turkey today. And the scripture is called the Galatian region. They find a young guy named Timothy, and together the three of them serve the Lord. Now, one day Paul had a vision to go to a place called Troas, and that's located in what we would call Eastern Europe. So now it went from Asia, now to Europe. This is where the gospel is expanding. They traveled to a place called Philippi and started a church. After a little persecution and the conversion of the jailer in Philippi, they left there and went to a city called Thessalonica and started a church there too. Now, these Thessalonians received the gospel that Paul and company shared, and they made a complete break with their old ways. Now, the Lord worked in Thessalonians to such a degree 
that their testimony became famous throughout the entire region. And Paul held them up as an example of how following Jesus was done. Later on, Paul was in Corinth. When he was in Corinth, he actually wrote them a letter to encourage them. And he described their conversion to Christ this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. He says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What an amazing description about these brothers and sisters. They had such a complete break with their old life. What about you? These guys were incredible. Now, just before Paul arrived in Corinth, though, he visited Athens. We've all heard about Athens. We know where Athens was and is. And he had a huge opportunity to appear before many and preach the gospel. And though the vast majority rejected Paul's message, thankfully, some of them actually believed and responded. Now, Luke records that just a few believe Paul's gospel, but every person is worth it to spend our efforts on. Would you agree with this? Now, my very early days as a Christian, um, before Kitty and I got together, um, I was a young man, single, on Guam. Very, uh, as I said, very early on in my Christian experience. And there was a brother that I hung around with. His name is Jim. And Jim and I went to Aganya, the capital city on Guam. <laughs> See the rolling of the eyes there. And so Jim and I were out there talking to people, and uh, we came across a drunk guy also named Jim. And uh, when we began to share the gospel with him, you know, Jim kind of just kind of whatever, you know, how a drunk person does. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, I don't know. But, you know, he just kind of listened. And then uh, we left that encounter, and then uh, Jim and I looked at each other, the not drunk Jim, uh, looked at each other, and we said, well, it's going to take a miracle for God to work in this person's life. Well, lo and behold, about six months later, Jim and I were together again, and we actually met this guy, Jim, the drunk guy. But now he wasn't drunk anymore. He was completely changed. He was a different man. And he showed us a small New Testament that he carried around with him almost since that day. And Jim thanked us for taking the time to share the gospel with him. See, he was in church now, and he knew that the Lord had saved him. And the point is, though, Even though we may only see a few people come to Christ in our lifetime, it's worth it to spend time with these people. These are precious souls. We got to keep at it. We got to keep sowing the seed. God is going to work as we are faithful at working with him. And from there, Paul went to Corinth. Now, as we know, he spent 18 months there preaching the gospel and making disciples. Priscilla and Aquila He met, and they became partners in ministry, and many people came to Christ. And Paul had his hands full, teaching these new Christians of the way of the Lord. And sometime in the middle of this, Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica, again, to encourage them in their faith. Well, on to the next place. After that year and a half, went to Ephesus, only for a short time, with the promise that there was probably going to be very fruitful ministry a little later on. 
And then Paul and his friends returned to his home base, Antioch, and went to St. Peter's Grotto, the cave. And that's where they held church, was in a cave. And I uh, had an opportunity to go to actually visit that when I was in Turkey. And here's second missionary trip was done then. But Paul wasn't finished because he had a third missionary trip that he went on. And once again, he visited the churches that he started and how he loved these people. He wanted to spend time with them and encourage them and to help them. He was very concerned for their spiritual welfare. And he wound his way back to Ephesus and eventually stayed there for three years. And he preached the gospel to them and and made disciples and was disciplining or discipling them. And during this time is when he actually wrote what we call 1 Corinthians. However, there are clues that tell us that Paul even wrote more than two letters to the Corinthians. You know, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he refers to a letter that he already wrote to them. And he said this, he says, I wrote to you in my letter, previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. See, evidently, in God's providence, that particular letter was not included in the New Testament scriptures. And we're going to see also in 2 Corinthians that Paul refers to at least one other letter that's not included there either. And so it's interesting in God's providence what letters that Paul and Peter and others wrote that were not included in the New Testament. But now, we would think, though, that the Corinthians would engage in the homework that Paul gave them in 1 Corinthians. Well, apparently they didn't do such a good job, especially in the all-important area of unity, living together in love and unity. And we're going to talk about how they were still divided and how that set them up for a lot of problems later on down the road. Well, sometime after Paul sent 1 Corinthians, he got word of something that was ready to decimate the church. And according to one learned guy, it required Paul to actually go and make an emergency visit to them to take care of this issue. Here's what scholar Mark Seafried had to say about it. It's impossible to discern precisely what brought Paul to the journey, why he made the journey. But the visit did not end up well, he says. As Paul sums up the matter in 1 Corinthians 2.1, he notes that he came to them in grief, in sorrow. A leading figure within the church stood up to Paul, resisting his authority. And the church, by doing nothing, gave its support to this person, who is resisting Paul's authority. And Seafried continues, the authority of the apostle is at stake here. Everything else recedes into the background, and it is this issue that must have prompted Paul's visit. There were some people there that were basically saying, Paul is worth nothing, and you don't need to listen to him, and he has no authority here, et cetera, et cetera. So that was kind of what was going on there in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. And so after this painful visit, Paul probably returned to Ephesus, and he wrote at that time, not what we call 2 Corinthians, but another letter. And he refers to this in in 2 Corinthians 7, and we're going to talk about that. It's a painful letter he talks about there. And after that letter was delivered, and somehow he had heard from them, and then he wrote what we call 2 Corinthians. So in other words, the relationship that Paul had with the Corinthians 
was long and it was complicated. Again, Paul expended much energy, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to love these people, the fallen saints and sinners, to help them in the ways of the Lord. And as we saw, Paul's life was full of the adventure of the Lord. Truly, he experienced what Jesus called an abundant life. But what abundance is this? Joys, to be sure. Happiness, not so much. Dynamic witness, absolutely. Satisfaction that the Lord was using him to accomplish even more than he could ask or think, most definitely. But how about trials and tribulations and physical difficulties, extreme pains in his body and soul? Yes to all that as well. And as we go through this letter, we're going to see Paul bearing his soul to the Corinthians and for God's people throughout the ages. We're going to be reading about Paul's struggles here 2,000 years later. Many people who have studied this letter for a living say that 2 Corinthians is the most personal of all of his letters. He will describe his afflictions in detail, his griefs, his sufferings, and even what keeps him going in spite of it all. See, heaven and the judgment seat of Christ awaits him and us in the life to come. But the love of Christ captured the very core of Paul's being is what compelled him to live his life for the glory of God in the here and now. And though we will read and study about all these things, we will see how the apostle to the Corinthians deals with a supreme challenge. And this challenge is to his divinely appointed authority that the Lord Jesus gave to him. As he said at the end of this letter, the authority the Lord gave him to build them up and not to tear them down. You ever see church leaders beat on their sheep? You've heard of this? You know what I'm talking about? These guys stand up there and they just, they accuse their people of all kinds of things and call them out in front of everybody and just, and, and make them feel horrible, you know, and just offend them deeply because they think they have this kind of authority to do that. But Paul said, I have the authority to build you up and not to tear you down. And it's this challenge to Paul's authority is what I now want to focus on. I mentioned earlier that the Corinthian Christians set themselves up for a huge problem that Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians. Well, how is that? Primarily, they did not deal with the number one issue that Paul dealt with and addressed in that letter, which was disunity. Starting in chapter 1, verses 10 to 13, after he greets them, he jumps right in. He says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized? In the name of Paul? And throughout the letter, whether it was brothers in Christ following their favorite leaders to the detriment of other leaders, Christians going to court with fellow Christians, hanging out their dirty laundry in front of non-believers for all to see, or one group of Christians unable to share the Lord's table because of people preventing them from doing so, 
See, all of this tore at the unifying fabric of the church. As Paul demanded rather forcefully, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? These are all rhetorical questions. And because of the self-inflicted tears of disunity, the Corinthians gave the enemy an opportunity to finish the job of tearing them down completely in the form of false teachers. Because they did not, as one church, submit to the authority that the Lord Jesus gave. Paul, the real enemy of the church, the devil, sent his workers to wreak havoc in the church in Corinth. As we'll see later on in this letter, Paul has a number of non-politically correct statements that he labeled these alien workers. He calls them, for example, Satan's servants, false apostles, and deceitful workmen, among many other choice descriptions. If we were to say that today about other people, how would people react to us? We're the haters. But that's what Paul called these people, and rightly so. And the defense of Paul's apostolic authority is at the heart of this letter that we call 2 Corinthians. But we will notice that it was not with a heavy hand that Paul came to the Corinthians. It was with a grieved heart that Paul laid his heart out on the table before them. See, these so-called super ministries of the so-called super apostles were satanically animated shiny objects that the Corinthians were tempted to go after. And they almost did. And what a timely message it is for us today. See, the very heart of salvation has to do with one word. That is authority. Now, it's true. God loved the world. But who did he send? He sent the king, King Jesus. See, Paul described it again, that God's true servants use that authority that God has given them to build people up and not to tear them down. Think of the gospel itself. It is good news of a king, king of kings to be exact. His father had given him all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, we are to go and proclaim the gospel. Therefore, we are to go and make disciples who make disciples. Therefore, we are to live together in love and unity. Today, the authority of Jesus is scarcely mentioned. You ever notice this in the churches? In other, if you hear people on the radio or you hear people on TV, you watch them, is the authority of Jesus mentioned hardly at all? See, Jesus' saviorhood is exalted to the heavens, and that's a good thing, but not his lordship. As I mentioned in the past, the description of Messiah Jesus as savior occurs five times. You know, Jesus being referred to as only savior. Five times. But Jesus being referred to as Lord over 500 times. You think there might be something to that? See, it's the Lord Jesus who was crucified and rose again. It's the Lord Jesus whom we are to follow. It is the Lord Jesus to whom we will give an account. And it is by his authority that we tell others the gospel. It is by his authority that we make disciples. It's by his authority that we live together in love and unity. And over the years, I believe the Lord has allowed us in this small body to weather some storms as well. 
and as we have encountered some challenges to God's authority even in our midst. There were those in our history that had the conviction that the authority of a certain message lied within the heart of the preacher. And if they felt like they could actually turn the, the, the Scripture and twist it around to fit what God had laid on their heart. And there are those in our midst who actually said that Muslims could be saved even if they did not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and that he died and rose again, that they too could be saved. This kind of stuff was, was believed by some people here. They're no longer here, but they were. By bringing these two painful issues up to remind us of this vital truth that no church is immune from satanic attack. We as Grace United and every other church which honors the Lord Jesus Christ must continue to live under his authority, every one of us. And how is that? See, we don't have apostles today. So where does the authority lie? In me? Uh Uh-uh. His word. His word is where the authority lies. We put our full confidence in the Scripture. And the plain teaching of Scripture, rightly understood, is where our authority lies. And so as we bring this message to a close today, how we need to recommit ourselves as a small cell in the body of Christ to the authority of the Lord to the church. He is the one who has all authority. and He's the one that has given us a book. And this is where the authority lies. A former president proclaimed as a campaign promise that he was going to fundamentally transform the United States. I don't think he quite did that, but I am convinced that the church of Jesus Christ has been transformed in the last decade or so. Things have happened in the church that have really put it on the slippery slope, I think. I hope come back. See, tragically, brothers and sisters in Christ cannot even discuss political differences without seeming to hate one another and even accuse the other side of sinning. I've actually seen this. The Black Lives Matter movement is another area where there's deep division in the body of Christ, as is the COVID issue. With that said, I'm very concerned about the moral issues of our day, which far too many people, even those who call themselves Christians, label as political issues. We know the national sins of abortion, homosexuality, heterosexual fornication and adultery, pornography, corruption in government at all levels, improperly viewing fellow image bearers of God with different shades of melanin and even falsely accusing one another over this and so much more. I'm also very concerned about the direction of our country and what the candidates actually stand for and what they seek to promote. You know, Scripture tells us in Proverbs 14, 34, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And as your pastor, let me implore you, let me implore all of us to prayerfully and intelligently vote. We're going to be held accountable those of us who are of age to be able to vote, will be held accountable for our votes in this election as we will for every election. And the watchword is to vote biblically. Not whether we like the candidate or not, but what do they stand for? What is their record on things? Not even so much what they've said. What have they done 
And that's really the issue that we need to take into account. And so how we as a church of Jesus Christ, we must and we need to return to the authority of Scripture and how we need to repent of our sin, how we need to get back to what the Lord told us to do, to be doing. There are three things and three things only the Lord has told us to do. To evangelize the lost, to disciple the saved, and to live together in love, in unity. May we hear Paul's defense of the authority that King Jesus gave him. And may we live under that same authority by rightly dividing and living out this letter that we call 2 Corinthians. Let us pray. Our Father, it is a serious thing to thwart your authority. Lord, you will not be mocked. That's what you told us. Father, you have dearly loved us. And you've sent your son to show us this. Lord, the cross is what you have shown, is what you have demonstrated, is, is, the, is the picture of judgment And it's the picture of love. At the same time, Lord Jesus, when you died on the cross, you were king. And as king, you took upon yourself all of our frailties, all of our infirmities, all of our sins, all of our failures, all of our rebellion. And you died for us. But Lord, you didn't stay dead. You were victor over the grave. And you're now exalted at the Father's right hand. And one day you're going to come back and you're going to establish your throne in Jerusalem. You're going to be ruling over the entire world. And until that day, Lord, you demand that we, as your people, live under your authority for our good and for your glory. I pray, Father, that you'll help us. Lord, in our, in our nature, in our, in our sinfulness, because, Lord, our, our hearts have not been, the sinfulness has not been eradicated from our hearts. But Lord, we need your help. We desperately need it so that we can live under your authority. I ask God that you would help us. Help us be pleasing to you. Lead us, guide us, protect us from the enemy. Protect us from ourselves, we pray. May we be pleasing in your sight. And I pray now, Father, as we, as we turn our attention to the giving, I pray that you help us to give. In, in just in response to how you have loved us. Lord, we can never outgive you. And so we thank you that you've given us opportunity to, to uh, just give back just to you a portion uh, of what you so richly blessed us with. I thank you also, Lord, for this time of singing as well. Help us, Lord, to sing with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, giving you the praise and the glory and honor because you alone deserve it. In Jesus' name.